Good morning from the Financial Times. Today is Friday, February 23rd, and this is your FT News Briefing. The UK and the EU agree to work closely on migration, and Japan's stock market hit a high not seen in more than 30 years. Plus, we're going to take a look at the Ukrainian city of Mariupol two years after it was invaded by Russian forces. I'm Mark Filipino, and here's the news you need to start your day. The UK and the European Union are signing a formal agreement to work together on migration. Today's deal is between the EU's border agency Frontex and the British government. The two sides will share intelligence, train officials together, and collaborate on new technologies to protect the border. The plan is the latest sign of thawing relations between the EU and the UK after Brexit. Prime Minister Rishi Sunak has said that a close relationship with Frontex is vital to reducing the number of migrants entering the UK, but officials have stressed that the UK will not be part of EU migration policy or be required to take asylum seekers. NVIDIA's share price surge sent stocks around the world on a hell of a run. The S&P 500, the Stocks, Europe 600, and the FTSE All World Index all ended at record highs. And so did Japan's Nikkei Index. Now, this one is a big deal because the record it broke was set 34 years ago. And we should mention that Nikkei Inc., which calculates and publishes the index, owns the Financial Times. Japan's market bubble burst in the 1980s and has had a slow time recovering. Leo Lewis, the FT's Asia business editor, was on the trading floor to witness the historic event for Japan. There was cheering, there was a standing ovation, and so what happened on Thursday was a very significant psychological moment. The ability for Japan to say, look, we are finally through our post-bubble period, we can go on to something else. Japan was riding high in the 1980s, especially in the tech and entertainment industries, so when the bubble burst... It was a big one. What you had in Japan was deflation. The banks were in a lot of trouble because of how much money had been loaned against property. You know, people who'd invested everything in assets that were crazily inflated prices were going bankrupt. You know, it was a long process. This kind of gloom that came over Japan left, you know, Japanese households as very, very cautious with their money. They hold an enormous amount in cash. Companies became quite conservative and cautious. And with all that caution, you know, the outside world looks on and goes, look, if if they're being cautious about their own economy and their own stock market, why should we be very enthusiastic about it? And and it's only been very recently that people have, have sort of looked at Japan with fresh eyes and decided, actually, you've got some very high quality companies here. Leo says there are a few reasons that investors outside Japan are looking at the country with fresh eyes. At the top end of corporate Japan are some globally high-quality companies. We think of of companies like Toyota, of course, in in the auto sector. You think of SoftBank in tech and Sony, obviously, in in entertainment. But look, underneath that is a very, very high-quality stratum of Japanese companies that are involved, for example, in semiconductor production, in speciality chemicals, in speciality engineering, and so on and so on. And it's those companies, the kind of bedrock of the Japanese 
economy that have made themselves very lean. They've made themselves extremely profitable uh, and they have globalized. And it's that kind of deal making, I think, that reflects an idea that they do need to go uh, overseas to get their growth in a way that in, in 1989 and when the bubble was inflating, that they would sit in Japan and sort of export the good stuff and wait for their own domestic market to, to do the rest. And there are other countries that can learn from Japan's experience too. If you look around China, it, it is indeed looking at the possibility of deflation settling in and not being a temporary thing. And of course, at the beginning of deflation in Japan, nobody thought it would last for such a long time. And so there are lessons in, in terms of the things that Japanese companies have done to globalize themselves and to make themselves leaner, certainly. But more crucially, from a policy point of view, it's a big cautionary tale about what happens if you let deflation settle in and let it cast its shadow over an entire economy for, for too long. Leo Lewis is the FT's Asia business editor. In other market news, Reddit is going to float. The social media site filed paperwork yesterday ahead of its initial public offering, which could happen next month. This would make Reddit the first major tech company to test the U.S. IPO market this year. Reddit was valued at $10 billion in its most recent private fundraising in 2021. But since then, some investors have marked down their valuations by about 50%. Two years ago, Mariupol captured the world's attention. President Zelensky says Russia's siege of the port city is a terror that will be remembered for centuries to come. It was the epicenter of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. And their tactics are becoming brutally familiar. If you can't seize a city, then simply flatten it. When Russian forces finally took control of Mariupol, 90% of the residential buildings were either damaged or destroyed. Now, Russia is trying to rebuild the city, but it's not going exactly to plan. Here to talk about it is the FT's Allison Killing. Hi, Allison. Hi there. All right, so Allison, after Russia took over Mariupol, what did it do first? So, very quickly, it installed its own Russian administration, and then it got to work ostensibly rebuilding. So very quickly, a master plan was published. It actually was announced two weeks before the last Ukrainian soldiers even surrendered. And this master plan, it takes us from 2022, when the city fell, through to 2035. It set out strategies for the development of the different neighbourhoods. It had plans for networks of trams and buses to be restored, things like that. And just given the damage from the fighting, I got to assume that these Russian authorities had their work cut out for them. How is the reconstruction going? If you listen and watch Russian media, then you would think it was going really well. There's been all of these brand new shiny apartment blocks which have been completed and these videos of happy residents moving into them. There are these new trams. But looking underneath that surface, it's all a sham. So this master plan, we learned that it was actually based on an old Ukrainian master plan from pre-2016. It's completely out of date. And that's, in fact, how they managed to produce it so quickly. The trams that we were shown riding around Mariupol, they were actually trams which the Ukrainian municipality bought just before the war. And the Russians like tidied them up after the bombing and then 
just rebranded them. They added stickers to the side saying St. Petersburg and Mariupol are twin cities. We've recently seen videos of those new apartments that were being built. And actually, they were constructed very, very poorly, partly because they were done so quickly. And they now seem to be falling apart. Now, how'd you find all this out? Like, who did you talk to? So a lot of what we found out, we found out through social media. We found this one resident. We call him Dmitry. That's not his real name. We changed it to protect him. But he's been posting regular videos about what's been going on in his apartment block. And it's really, really shocking. The building was badly damaged through the war. But then once the Russian construction company turned up to help repair the work, things didn't get better. And in many cases, they made things worse. He described how laborers came and they removed all of the windows from the apartment block and just left the place open to the elements for several months. We've seen videos of water pouring through the ceilings in the apartments in that building. There were buckets spread around uh, the apartments that residents have put there to catch the water. But because it's so cold there, the water in those buckets is freezing solid. There's this one video where Dmitry actually goes over and he's like tapping on the ice, showing you that like this water has frozen solid. That's how cold it was in these apartments. That sounds really bad. Are there other issues for Ukrainians who are now living under Russian occupation? Yeah, unfortunately, there's a lot. It's been particularly difficult when people left their apartments. But now trying to go back to that same apartment is proving difficult. And they're being asked for papers that they don't have and being told that they need to go to the new Russian installed courts to get those. And we're being told by residents that that's a huge amount of money, that they can't afford it. In other cases, what we've seen is that buildings have been so badly damaged that they needed to be knocked down and rebuilt. But then those reconstructed apartments are being sold as luxury apartments. And the original residents are instead being offered apartments on the outskirts. Wow, that's tough. Uh, that's, really, that's really awful. Um, all these problems that these residents are facing in Mariupol, I mean, what does it say more broadly about life under Russian occupation? I mean, what we're really seeing in Mariupol is a real attempt to normalize the occupation through the rebuilding, through the installation of the government and through the sort of performance of local government actions, what we would expect from a local government. What we're also seeing is a, a huge amount of potential corruption because so much money has flooded into the city. And so you have a lot of inexperienced construction companies feeding into the problems. And it's Russian businesses that are benefiting from that. And that's something that we've been trying to uncover as well. Alison Killing is a senior visual investigations reporter for the FT. Thanks, Alison. Thank you. You can read more on all of these stories at ft.com for free when you click the links in our show notes. This has been your daily FT News Briefing. Make sure you check back next week for the latest business news. The FT News Briefing is produced by Kasha Broussaian, Sonia Hudson, Fiona Simon, and me, Mark Filipino. Our engineer is Monica Lopez. We had help this week from Josh Gabardoyan, Zach St. Louis, Sam Giovinco, David De Silva, Michael Lello, Peter Barber, and Gavin Coleman. Our executive producer is Topher Forges. Cheryl Bromley is the FT's global head of audio, and our theme song is by Metaphor Music.
Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, this is Janice Torres from Yo Quiero Dinero. From a local business to a global corporation, partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights, and business solutions so powerful, you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash bankingforbusiness to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America N.A. Copyright 2024.